One of the things that I always get really interested in and fascinated by are just world-changing events, like moments in history that radically alter everything. Tomorrow's one of those, right? Y'all would be too young to remember it, being, or you weren't alive even when it took place, but the 9-11 attacks was one of those. It was just the whole country froze for like a week and nobody did anything. Like everything was canceled, every sporting event, every activity, the whole world just froze for the events that we'll remember tomorrow or the Kennedy assassination. Now, I was not alive for that, but I'm told it was very much a similar type thing or like, but you might remember COVID, right? COVID was this weird thing where all of a sudden this moment in history that the world changed substantially and we all decided like, hey, we're just going to freeze and stay in place for a few weeks or a few months and maybe a few years for some people. I don't know. But it was one of those events and those events just really always fascinate me. But this morning, if we're fascinated with life-altering, world-changing events, the passage we're looking at this morning is the event. As, as big as other things may seem, may be, as much as they can change our day-to-day life and um, how we experience life, nothing has altered history or eternity more than what we will look at this morning in Matthew chapter 27. This morning we actually come to the death of Christ, the single most pivotal moment in all of eternity. This past Wednesday, Matt over here led us in our study of Matthew through the point where Jesus is on the cross. In verse 33, we saw that they led Jesus to Golgotha. They stripped him of his clothing. They nailed him to the cross. They lifted him up to die a slow public death, a humiliating death. And as Jesus was on the cross, you'll remember from Wednesday night, People were mocking him. The people around him were mocking him. Verse 38 tells us he was crucified with two criminals. Verse 39 tells us that those who were passing by were mocking him, specifically in verse 41, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are mocking Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Verse 44 tells us even those criminals that were being hung with Jesus on their own cross next to him, that they were mocking him. And that brings us to our passage that we'll look at this morning, verses 45 to 50, where we see the final hours of Christ on the cross in his ultimate death. And here's the theme. Here's the central thing that is taking place in the passage that we'll look at this morning. The Father's wrath is poured out on the Son. And here's the important part. For our justification. Now when we say justification, what we're talking about is being made right in the sight of God. And central to all this is the reality that each of us is a sinner. Each of us sin every single day, multiple times throughout the day, even in our best moments, They're tainted with sin. And that sin separates us from God. It it separates us 
so far from God that we could never be reconciled, made right with God in and of ourselves and on our own. The penalty for sin is death. And in the passage we look at this morning, that penalty for our sin is laid upon Christ and God's wrath that we deserve is poured out upon Christ so that we can be justified. We can be made right with God, declared right with God, brought into right fellowship and right relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ does on the cross. So we'll look at this in four different sections. Part one, the time of death. This is the time of death. This is a Friday afternoon. This is when we celebrate Good Friday. When you hear that, people talk about Good Friday um, in the spring, the Friday before Easter. That is the Friday that we're looking at here. Um, And this time of death, the first part we'll look at, verse 45 tells us what time of this Friday we are looking at. In verse 45, it says, now from the sixth hour, hey Matt, there's like some weird deep bass thing going on or like weird vibe, I don't know, maybe only I can hear it, but it feels odd, can't shake it. Um, Verse 45 in Matthew 27 says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. So when you, the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels will talk about this, what hour of the day it was um, pretty often. You'll see it come up. And they started counting the day from 6 a.m. 6 a.m. would be hour number one. And so the sixth hour of the day, we're looking at noon. 12 o'clock p.m., middle of the day. And we'll see that it's just past the ninth hour at 3 p.m. where Jesus dies. But something interesting happens that Matthew tells us about here in these three hours between noon and 3 p.m. Matthew tells us that darkness fell upon the land. Luke, in his account, adds that the sun became obscured. Now, what exactly is this darkness? I feel very confident that it's miraculous darkness. When we say a miracle, when biblically you're speaking about a miracle, a miracle is something that God does for which there is no natural mechanism or explanation. So just something like really unusual happening. Biblically speaking, that's not a miracle. Or just something that happens that's amazing, like a baby being born or whatever. That's not, biblically speaking, a miracle. A miracle is when God imposes on the natural order his will and just completely does something for which there's no natural explanation. And that is what I believe is happening here when in the middle of the day, when the sun is normally its brightest, when the sun is most powerfully shining upon the land, it goes dark. I think if it was just some dust storm or some unusually cloudy day, I think one of the gospel writers would have told us that. They sure, none of the gospel writers attempt to give us any kind of physical explanation for what happens here. This is a miraculous symbol from God. And I think that this is a miracle is further supported 
by events that we won't look at this morning, but we'll look at them in our next lesson. Immediately after Jesus dies, other miraculous events start occurring. The veil of the temple is torn in two. The veil that Pastor Dusty was talking about last Sunday morning. There's an earthquake, and even some of the dead are raised. So I think this is just the first in a chain of miracles that surround the death of Christ. A, a, a chain of miracles that show us the significance of the moment. They're symbolic of what is taking place. And when we see this darkness, it's symbolic of the darkness and the evil of the perfect Son of God, the Holy One, being crucified at the hands of sinful men. There's other times in the Old Testament where darkness followed God's judgment, came with God's judgment. Listen to Amos 9, verses 8 and 9, where this is about God's judgment on Israel for their social injustice. Amos 9, 8 to 9, look at how much this foreshadows what we're seeing here in Matthew 27. Amos says, it'll come about on that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight, and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. Remember the plague of darkness in Exodus chapter 10, and there's other examples we can give, but here in Matthew 27, the light of the world is being murdered at the hands of sinful men, and it's this moment in history that we're looking at where man's sinfulness is the deepest, the darkest, and the most evident. The miracle here, the darkness is representative of the darkness of what is taking place. And here's what's taking place. Part 2, verse 46, a cataclysmic break in fellowship. Something remarkable happens in verse 46 that is really far beyond what we can fully comprehend, explain, no amount of discussion can really get to the fullness and how huge, how cataclysmic what takes place in ver verse 46 is. A break, a cataclysmic break in fellowship. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, so this is 3 p.m., about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's two points I want us to recognize here and two points of discussion I'm going to give you in this section. Number one, the devastation of this estrangement. This estrangement from between the Son and the Father. And the second thing I'm going to give you here is Jesus remains faithful. Even in the midst of this, Jesus remains faithful. The first thing I want us to see here, though, in this cataclysmic break in fellowship is the devastation of this estrangement. Uh, what is this odd statement? Eli, Eli, 
Lima Sabachthani? Well, it's Aramaic. It's the common language that would have been spoken in Israel during Jesus' time. And Matthew gives us the translation here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Here, this right here, this is the most painful part of the crucifixion. This is the most painful part of everything we've seen. Do you think the beatings were painful? Absolutely. Do you think the scourging was painful? Absolutely. Do you think the mockings were painful? Absolutely. All of that was excruciatingly painful. Jesus was 100% human, just like you and me. 100% God at the same time, but 100% human, just like you and me. He experienced all that just as you and I would experience it extraordinarily painful and as Christ worked through his life and ministry and the destiny of his crucifixion looking forward to it absolutely he dreaded those things but above all this estrangement from the father is by far the most painful thing he experienced by far the thing that he dreaded the most because you see the father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit Remember that God is a trinity. And we're talking about so many things, and this happens with God, that are just beyond what we can fully understand. They're things that we can kind of vaguely understand as a human, but God is infinite, right? We are finite. And even in creation, how much are we always learning about new stuff that blows our mind? All the time, right? So how much more should the infinite creator How much more should we expect that there's going to be things about God that we can only understand to an extent, but we're okay with that because we are limited, finite people learning and loving and understanding an infinite God. And so we come across so many of these things like the Trinity, the fact that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for eternity past, these three people, the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, experience perfect love with one another, perfect fellowship with one another. One of the things we can often wrongly think about Jesus is that he didn't exist till Christmas. Like Christmas is when he was born, about a little over 2,000 years ago. Jesus was born. That's when Jesus came into existence. But that's absolutely wrong. That is just when Jesus took on flesh. That is just when Jesus physically became a man and was born as a baby. Jesus existed for eternity before that. The Bible tells us that Jesus, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, have always been. And in fact, we usually don't think of Jesus as creator. I think when we think of creator, our mind instantly goes to the Father. But the Bible is just as clear that Jesus created everything. Colossians 1.16, by Jesus, all things were created. Look at how John puts it, John 1. John 1. I'll read verses 1 to 3 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, 
and I'm just going to give you a hint. The word is Jesus here. That's what John's going to tell us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And just so you know, in verse 14, this is Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, 2,000 years ago, the word became flesh, but he existed eternally before that. And Jesus existed with the Father in perfect love and perfect fellowship. John 17, four to five, Jesus says this to the Father. I glorify you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself. And here's the key. With the glory which I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, before time existed, before anything existed. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit existed in perfect love and fellowship with one another. Is love an attribute of God? Yes, love is an attribute of God. And how can love exist before there's anything to love? Like we understand now, well, yeah, God loves us. So that's an attribute of God. But God loved before we existed, before anything existed, because there was love for one another in the fellowship of the Trinity. And now in Matthew 27, the moment we're looking at with Jesus upon the cross, the Father has chosen to offer up his Son as a sacrifice for the penalty of our sins. This is God's eternal plan of redemption playing out. And an important thing to note that we're going to return to here at the end when Jesus dies is that Jesus wasn't just some hapless victim. Jesus wasn't somebody whose life was out of control, a victim of circumstances. The Jews, the Roman guards were not in control here. This was God's sovereign plan. God, it, it, sure, the Jews and the Romans crucified Christ, but it was God's love for you and me that put Jesus in this position. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Was the son taken from the father? No, the father, because of his love for the world, you and me, rebellious people, rebellious sinners, the father gave his only son. Listen to Isaiah 53, four to six. The, the, the whole Old Testament, go back to Genesis 3.15. 
This has been God's plan from the moment sin, and frankly, from before sin entered the world. God wasn't like surprised when sin entered the world. This is God's eternal plan. He knew this would take place, but immediately in Genesis, as soon as sin enters the world, God begins to tell us about this plan. Listen to how he told Israel in Isaiah 53, four to six. Surely our griefs, and this is all talking about Jesus here, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Here's the mocking part. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Verse 6 has always just really stood out to me and caught my mind. It focuses on us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and then it flips us to Christ. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. How much does God hate sin? more than we could ever fathom, more than we could ever understand. We gloss over sin all the time, but God utterly hates it, utterly hates it. And think about what is taking place in the cross. The sin of all who would ever believe in Christ, past, present, future, how much sin is that? It's a lot of sin. If it was just me, it would be a lot of sin, but it's all of us. It is a lot of sin. All of that is being placed upon Christ, and the Father is punishing him and treating him as though he had committed all those sins. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the transaction that takes place in the cross. Our sinfulness is credited to Christ as if he was the sinner. And his righteous life, his perfect holiness that he lived out is credited to us so that God treats us and justifies us as if we had lived the life that Christ lived. But this wrath of God upon the Son, this break in fellowship, is the most cataclysmic event in eternal history. That's why Jesus is crying out here in verse 46. The world has gone dark. It's interesting what Jesus does here, though. What did Jesus do in Matthew 4? When he was tempted by Satan, where did, what did he quote to Satan? Scripture. Scripture. He went to the Bible, right? What does Jesus do here? And this is our second point. So the first thing I wanted you to see in this section in verse 46, first thing was in verse 46 was this cataclysmic break in fellowship. The, the, the second piece I want you to see here, though, is Christ's example for us in suffering. Christ, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
it's more than just him expressing the moment or expressing how he's feeling. He's once again quoting Psalm 22 and turning to Scripture. Matthew, Matt Bennett, did a very great job Wednesday night of walking us through Psalm 22, one of the messianic psalms that is very clearly about the suffering of Christ on the cross. And he pointed us to all the different places in Psalm 22 that connect to our passage. In verse 46, here's another one of those. Psalm 22, 1 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and this turning of Christ back to Scripture, back to Psalm 22, is an example for us in how to suffer, is not a sign, obviously, of, his, of Christ becoming unfaithful. He's not losing faith in the Father here. He's not becoming angry at the Father here or accusatory towards the Father. He still addresses him as, my God. And if you go read Psalm 22, we'll look at more of it here in a moment, and I highly encourage you to go read it because it's such a great example to us of how we should respond to suffering. Throughout, is life difficult sometimes? Absolutely, all the time, I think. I think life's pretty tough. But Psalm 22 is a mixture of the honesty of how it feels to live in a sinful world, dealing with our own sin, but the sin of those that are around us, how to live with this mixture of anguish and honesty towards God, yet with ultimate faith in the goodness of God, with ultimate trust in his sovereign plan. And I have no doubt that as Jesus quotes Psalm 22 here, it's not just verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that is on the mind of Christ, but it is all of Psalm 22. In fact, just listen to how Psalm 22 continues on. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 22, the psalmist expresses this feeling of being forsaken by God and this feeling of God's abandonment, but then he reminds himself of the truth of God's goodness and who he is. Psalm 22, verses three to four. Yet you, God, are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. In the deepest of suffering, Jesus turns back to the word of God and expressing true anguish at feeling the abandonment of God. Psalm 22 is a reminder of God's ultimate victory and ultimate faithfulness. We can truly have deep anguish and pour, pour that anguish out to God and at the same time absolutely trust and remember his goodness. Worship him. This breaking apart of the fellowship of the Trinity, yes, this would have been um, utterly catastrophic. But let's just, I want to actually turn to Psalm 22 and just read this psalm. We won't read all of it, but just what was on Jesus' mind and how much we can relate to it 
in the midst of our own suffering. And I love how it's a battle back and forth between being overcome with grief and expressing that grief, yet pushing back over to remember the goodness of God and worship God. Is that kind of how y'all experience trouble a lot of times? I know it is for me. It's like things get to feel overwhelming. Things feel hard. And you feel, but then you're able to maybe, maybe battle back for a few moments and get your mind back on God's truth, back centered where it should be. And you're good for a minute, right? And then like it's an hour later, 30 minutes later, whatever, and you're right back to feeling the anguish again. Psalm 22, I'll just look at verse one here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. But now he's going to go back to the anguish. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Think about Matthew 27 here and what we heard Wednesday night. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And now going back to focusing on the truth of who God is, his ongoing faithfulness in verse 9. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. And this continues. There's this back and forth throughout Psalm 22. But listen to how it ends. Because this estrangement from the Father, we know what comes Sunday after Good Friday. Easter. Resurrection Sunday. We know that this estrangement is temporary. We know that God's plan of salvation ends in victory. Psalm 22 ends that, on that note. Psalm 22 expresses this anguish with full hope. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. The, the, Christ knew the ultimate victory of this plan of salvation. I, I think just when we suffer, our suffering will never be to the extent of Christ. It'll never be suffering as an innocent sacrifice for sin 
But no matter what the circumstances of our suffering, and this, the Psalms do this in so many places, but Psalm 22 is um, one of the one that I wanted to point us to this morning. Look to the example of Christ, who even in the midst of the deepest anguish, the deepest trouble possible, while he expresses his agony and he expresses um, the pain of what he's experiencing, he turns his mind to scripture and turns his mind to the victory that is ours in the Father. That brings us to part three, verses 47 to 49. Confused bystanders, standers, confused bystanders, verses 47 to 49. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. The, these Aramaic words, Eli, Eli, meaning my God, my God, they're going to sound a lot like Elijah. Elijah means Yahweh is my God. And so um, they really don't hear Jesus well here. They think he's calling for Elijah to come help him. Elijah would have been a very familiar figure to anybody who was Jewish, anybody who had even a little bit of knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, we talked one time Wednesday night, like, who would be the Mount Rushmore, who would be on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. Elijah would definitely be in consideration. He was one of the most prominent um, prophets and figures of the Old Testament. And, and so um, it's understandable that they would have probably thought maybe he's calling out for Elijah here. Uh, John also tells us that it's at this point that Jesus mentions he's thirsty. So John um, mentions he's thirsty. If you look back at Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, it's again another uh, reference point because Psalm twenty-two, fifteen says, "My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue." cleaves to my jaws. Psalm 69, 21, again, foreshadowing this time in Matthew, the suffering of Christ, says, they gave, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Vinegar wine would have been what they gave Jesus here. It just really in first century, it's pretty hard to have clean water to drink. That's why wine was such a prominent thing because you couldn't just go turn on the tap and get clean water out. You couldn't go grab a bottle of water. It, clean water was hard to get, so people usually drank wine because it was much safer um, from just a cleanliness standpoint, but they're probably not gonna have good wine at the cross. This would have been something that the soldiers had there for themselves to drink, um, during the crucifixion, but it's not going to be the good wine. It's this cheap vinegar wine. And when Jesus mentions he's thirsty, verse 48 says, immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And that brings us to the end. John 19:30 says, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And that brings us to the death of Christ in verse 50. Our, our, third, our fourth part here, part four, the death of Christ. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The three things I want us to look at here in verse 50 when it comes to the death of Christ, the three important things I want us to see. Number one, it was voluntary. Number two, it was historical. This really happened. Number three, it's temporary. First of all, it's voluntary. Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. The wording here is very important. The fact that this was voluntarily Jesus giving up his life in this moment is very, very important. If you're familiar with John 10, verses 17 to 18, Jesus says this about his life and death. Jesus says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, some of you might reasonably object, Christ didn't give up his life. They killed him. They, they, they beat him, scourged him, nailed him to a cross. They're the ones who killed him. And yes, in a sense, Jesus is being killed by these Roman guards who have nailed him to a cross. But that's not the bigger reality. The greater reality, the bigger reality, is that Jesus is voluntarily giving up his life, and he chooses the exact moment at which he would die. In fact, Jesus died way faster, way faster than most people took to die on the cross. Most people on the cross, it took potentially days for the effects to carry through and lead to their ultimate death. But Christ, he chose the moment of his death. And there's always that weird intermix when it comes to man's actions and like the actions that we take in God's sovereignty, right? There's always that weird interchange. Think about even Joseph. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They're going to kill him, but then they sell him into slavery. And all these terrible things take place, but God ultimately uses that for the greater good of not just the people of Israel, but the nation of Egypt as well, saving many people. And when bro Joseph is approached by his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, yeah, you did these evil things. You meant them for evil, but God meant them for good. And we see this principle throughout the Bible. And where else do we see it more clearly than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where, yes, these sinful Jewish leaders, the Jewish people, the Roman soldiers, they crucified Christ to the cross, meaning it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God at no moment loses any of his sovereign control over the situation, including the moment of his death. The life of Jesus is not being taken from him. He is choosing to lay it down. He will die at the exact moment he chooses to allow himself to die. 
Uh, even the Greek language here supports that. But look at the wording in Matthew. It says, Jesus yielded up his spirit. Luke records the words of Christ, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. John says, Jesus gave up his spirit. So just like the father, the son was not taken from the father. The father gave his son. The life of Christ was not taken from him. Christ gave up his life for us. He is sovereign in these circumstances. His death was voluntary. The second, it was historical. Like Jesus is 100% man, 100% human, 100% God in this situation. And he really dies. He really, his heart stops beating. He stops breathing. His brain waves stop functioning. This is a historical reality. This isn't like some myth. This isn't some philosophical idea that we're trusting in. This is the real historical death of a real historical man that has eternal significance for the state of our souls. Because of our sinfulness, death was the penalty. Not some figure of speech, but in reality. And the third point I want to make here, it's temporary. It is temporary. We know the outcome. We know that in three days, that heart that has now stopped beating, it's sitting there, right? The heart of Christ is sitting there completely still. And then on that Sunday morning, in an instant, all of a sudden, it starts beating again. And he starts breathing again. And this death is temporary. Just as he has authority to give up his own life, nobody else does. Christ alone has that authority. He also has the authority to take it up again. There's really only one point of application. And that is, have you put your faith in the death of Christ to pay the penalty for your sins? This is literally the single most pivotal moment in human history. We all sin. We all sin every single day, throughout the day. And that sin creates um, insurmountable barrier between us and the Father. Your whole purpose for existing is to have this fellowship with God and to glorify God. That is the single most central reason that you even exist. And because of your sin, you can't do that. You can't live out your only purpose for existence because of your sinfulness. But like John 3.16 says, God loves us so much that he gave his son, what we're seeing this morning, so that we can be forgiven if we put our faith in him. 
the chorus of humanity is that you can, you can get yourself right with God. That's the chorus of humanity. So you look through human history and there's countless different ways that people have concocted to try to earn their way back with God. Countless different religions. Some of them even call themselves Christian. Like, hey, do these things and you'll be right with God. Go through these formulas, you'll be right with God. Or just be good enough. But no, that is completely contrary to anything God has told us in his word. Jesus says that he alone is the way to the Father. And the single path to salvation through the Father was purchased through his death on the cross. So that if we would come to him, recognize our sinfulness, repent of our sinfulness and put our faith in him, in him alone, to purchase our salvation, then at that moment, the sin that we commit, that you commit, is paid for through the death that we see in Matthew 27, verse 50. And just like Peter or Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that righteous life that Christ lived is credited to you so that you can then stand before the Father justified, made right with him, and have that perfect fellowship with him that you were created for. That's the call of the gospel. That's what Matthew 27 is absolutely all about. And I encourage you, if you're confused on that, if there's just questions you have, talk to any leader. Like, that is literally why we're here. Talk to any of us. We'd love to have that conversation with you. It's the single most central moment in world history, but it should also be the most pivotal moment in all of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we do just thank you so much for your love for us, your death on the cross, your example to us, and the fact that we know in three days you came alive again and that you live today to make intercession for us with the Father and that you love us and you invite us into that fellowship between you and the Father. And I just pray that this truth would become the centerpiece of our lives and that we would live every day to honor and glorify you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.